I'm Alice Cooper, and you're not even close, except on Halloween, maybe. And I will admit, you look pretty darn good. Welcome to my 10th episode of Vintage Vault, wherein I dig through the massive archives of my radio show company, United Stations, and dig up gems for you. And one of those great vintage interviews is from the late, very great singer of Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, one of the people who is irreplaceable. Uh, We've lost too many of them, but especially this past week, which marked the anniversary of a life ending too soon. Seemed time to honor him for his huge influence with Soundgarden, Audio Slave, Temple of the Dog. Of course, he came to accept that he was, as some press called him, an architect of grunge. Well, you know, every generation rebels against the last generation. Uh, The hair bands, the hair metal scene, that whole glam scene that went on in L.A., Uh, was coming to an end and something had to replace it. And lo and behold, here came Seattle. On Nights with Alice Cooper, we play a lot of Soundgarden songs like Spoon Man, Outshine, Black Hole Sun. Uh, Black Hole Sun, I think, is probably my favorite song of his only because it was very Beatle-oriented and he nailed it. Chris had one of the best voices in rock. Chris was one of the guys who was really born to write music, to sing, to be loved, and man, could he sing. That voice, a combination of, uh, it was such is a rock voice, and yet it was a commercial radio voice. And we used to talk about that, and he'd say, I was just born with this radio voice. And I said, yeah, it's, it's like a McCartney voice that he can go hard, or you can go just totally straight up, and it works. He was a great guy. Uh, we did some work together. We wrote uh, songs for The Last Temptation. And, um, you know, I had a great time writing with him. We wrote a song called Stolen Prayer and Unholy War, which were not exactly in my wheelhouse, but I turned them into an Alice song. And Chris loved the fact that I could take one of his songs that would be different and make it into an Alice song. We really had a great time together. And I really appreciated this guy. I mean, he's a true, true real songwriter. Uh, here's a little reminder of those songs. I, I kind of mold over uh, old songs and have a, you know, I have a lot of songs kind of just sitting around and thought about possibly getting some of that out and then continuing on. But uh, usually not, not very good at that, just the attention span of, of concentrating on something that I've been thinking about for a long time. It's not, not as exciting as just starting from scratch and doing new things. So I did that for a little while and, and uh, then just started working on new songs slowly. I wasn't really in a hurry. It didn't really seem like time mattered. So uh, just went at a slow pace. And, and, uh, and then, of course, my record company was pretty much dissolved through a merger in the middle of recording. So that gave me a little more time as well. Just didn't feel like I wanted to rush an album out in the middle of a huge shakeup in the industry. And uh, this was a time, I think, before he became the giant that he was. He was, uh, you know, you know, like every other band and every other artist trying to make it. And he was sort of in the middle of that when I started working with him. And, um, you know, it was just one of those things where I was very lucky. I did when I meet people and I look at the guy and I just went, "Oh, this is going to be good," you know, because he just had it. 
I love working with guys that come in prepared, ready to go. And here, listen to this. And I went, oh my gosh, great song. <laughs> and uh, like I said, I only have great memories of him. Unfortunately, Chris took his own life in 2017. He had a lot of friends, fans, as well as three great children and a wife who loved him. But in that moment, the despair was just overwhelming for Chris. If you ever feel like you might harm yourself, remember in the U.S., you can call 800-273-8255 for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Call or text a friend, your pastor, your rabbi, your minister, anybody that you can talk to that makes sense to you. Um, Chris's death came as a gigantic surprise to me. Uh, I never, ever felt or even picked up on the suicide angle for him. He seemed like he was very up, very driven. Like I said, he had a great family, but who knows what clinical depression is. I mean, I've never had it, so I can't talk about it. Uh, but it must be horrific because anybody as up as this guy and had everything, he had the world on a string, and to kill himself right after a concert in Detroit that was very successful, had dinner with his family, goes up to his room and kills himself. I, I don't get it. I just do not get it. Lots of help is out there, though. If you're feeling suicidal, uh, get help right now. But we want to celebrate the massive amount of influential and beautiful work that Chris did. So for this uh, interview, 1999, Chris talked about his writing process for the first solo album, Euphoria Morning. Let's get behind the song Can't Change Me, which went on to be nominated for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance in the 2000 Grammy Awards. Lyrically, things either happen or they don't. I don't tend to wake up in the morning and, and have a thought that's been chewing at me or a statement that I think I should make and then use songwriting as a vehicle for that. It's, that's never felt right to me. And also, on the other hand, you know, thinking about lyrics in terms of specific ideas or statements to get out, if I do try it, it doesn't tend to make a very good song or good lyrics for that matter. Um, and that was also one of the last songs that I wrote and with and one of the and the first that I recorded for the album and it just seemed as a song, as a piece of music to be uh, the best introduction to the sequence of songs. It didn't take shape like a normal recording process for an album. Uh, we never took days off because it didn't seem like we were working necessarily. We were just recording and coming up with ideas and, and uh, you know, maybe 10th, 11th day in a row of working, wake up and not necessarily feel like it. Uh, then you're in someone's house and, you know, next thing you know, you're renting a movie or... or uh, going out to a restaurant or it, it didn't the, the lines were kind of blurred from working and not working and and uh that was good because if if i wasn't feeling particularly inspired to do anything in a moment uh it wasn't saying okay well i'll go home now or i'll go find something else to do because we were already in the home environment so, i mean as you change musically uh music is going to inspire a mood that is then going to inspire an idea for lyrics. And I've always been uh, pretty serious about wa wanting the two to connect, uh, which can be 
sometimes really difficult when you're writing lyrics to someone else's music, um, but sometimes it can feel very fresh and, and be very, very quick and, and easy. Um, but the actual process of writing, whether it was music or lyrics, even though uh, the music was different and inspiring different moods lyrically, it was still the same for me, which is uh, just sitting around by myself in a room and, and doing it. Um, when I'm Down is a really good example. Uh, I mean, the lyrical hook in that, to me, is kind of funny. It's sort of a twisted love song. There's a little bit of humor in it. A lot of people read the lyrics and just think of it as this lamenting person that's just depressed all the time. Uh, but to me, it's just like a different different view of a, of a love song, in a way, uh, without being interested in just writing a love song in the direct fashion that everybody does. But um, the choice of word, the choice of subject felt like it fit really well with, with that music. Um, on the other hand, I think uh, Wave Goodbye, lyrically, really, to me, when I was first writing it, almost felt like it belonged to another song in a way. But uh, that was intentional in that... Uh, that was kind of a lament and, and a dedicational, and I didn't feel like writing those lyrics and then putting them to music in the normal fashion of, of the candle and the wind style, uh, dedicational, and felt like I wanted the music to be a little more uplifting, just as a, just in contrast, something something that would feel new to me. Thinking, well, if it, it truly is a dedicational, then. It, it would be nice that it's a piece of music that he would have liked. <laughs> so that, that was part of it as well. And also, uh, uh, unfortunately, having been in that situation before and, and writing about somebody that was young that, that, and very talented that went away, I didn't want to go back in my mind or in my songwriting style and, and recreate that either. All songwriters have different ways of working, but sometimes if a song just isn't working, we put it to the side. But then it happens that we often go back months or even years later and look at them with fresh eyes and ears and we go, oh, why didn't I go here? Why didn't I take... I, I had one song called um, Sex, Death, and Money, which were the three things that drive the secular world. Sex, death, and money. Uh, any movie, any play, any song has to do with one of those things. I wrote it six different times and tried to fit it on an album and went, no, it just doesn't fit this album. I finally, it did fit on Brutal Planet. And because the, the album was about our society uh, flying downhill at about a thousand miles an hour into a brick wall and sex, death and money was one of the um, things that was, projecting it forward. Uh, like most of us, Chris always loved music and began exploring that love as a teenager. Writing and playing music since I was 16. <laughs> um, you know, the band, didn't, I was in my 20s when the band started and, and did a lot of things outside the band as well. It was uh, I continually did things outside the band that, that weren't released just for fun. I mean, that's what I do. So it actually has surprised me on occasion when somebody would come up to me on the street and say, so are you going to do anything else? <laughs> well, 
I kind of feel too young to pick up golf. So I always want to keep a little variety in my music too. Although you can't argue with the success of ACDC who, you know, have found a sound that is just their sound. Uh, I'm often put in the shock rock category, but I think I have a lot of diversity on each record. I mean, I've had four ballad hits that have been covered by everybody that uh, people didn't recognize coming. I, I do hard rock. I do heavy metal. I can do just about any kind of songwriting, but I stay in the hard rock vein because that's really where I live. And from record to record, though, I don't mind adding an instrument that I haven't used before or or adding a little twist or a little tug. And even at that, I try to find a way that at the very end of the song, I might throw a little Twilight Zone twist to the story. Yeah, like the first five or so songs um, were pretty diverse across the board. There was no point at all when I felt like I had to avoid anything. Um, almost uh, there were occasions where where I was almost thinking in the other direction, not, not that... Uh, not that I should be trying to approach songwriting from somewhere that I was used to or comfortable, but clearly the album started shaping up as being um, fairly slower in tempo and, and definitely a lot less aggressive throughout. And uh, when I would think that, I would think sometimes, well, maybe I should have something with a little more aggression or a little more tempo, something that's a... But then I think of albums over the years that I've liked a lot and had nothing like that in them anywhere, and the thought never crossed my mind. I was never in the middle of like listening to Pink Floyd's second album and wondering why they didn't have an ass-kicking rocker. <laughs> it didn't really occur to me. I was just enjoying the music. And that just wasn't, uh, that wasn't coming out of me. just naturally was... was uh, interested in doing something else. Uh, that was on Dragon Town, which was sort of um, my version of what hell would be. Because uh, in Dragon Town, you're there and there's no way out. There's no praying to God because God has abandoned you. And Dragon Town is in maybe the scariest uh, album I made because... There was no, well, yeah, but you can always get out doing this. No, you had already had your chance, and this was where you were in Dragon Town. When I decided to record um, Clones, I was a little worried about it. It was a little bit too new wave, a little bit too, but I, I decided, you know what, if I do this with Alice's attitude, it, it could really work. And working with Roy Thomas Baker, uh, Only Women Bleed did not bother me. Or the, or the ballads, because I said, I always wanted there to be a romantic soft side to the Alice character, because, you know, I didn't want him to be without that, uh, as much as I didn't want him to be without comedy. You know, there was always going to be the heavy, there was always going to be the scary, but I wanted a softer side and I wanted a funny side. So, you know, every once in a while you, you, you do a song and you go, what, is this going to work? Is, are people going to like this coming from me? You just have to do it. You know, and and see where where it falls. I think that whatever left turn I may take in my music, uh, still you know it's me. Just like you always know, it's a Beatles song. Eddie Vedder's voice, Soundgarden's guitar sound. You know, everybody has a signature in their in what they do. If you don't get one, 
But it's Chris's lyrics that people relate to. There's something hypnotic about them, about the way he sings them. Soundgarden rocked, but Chris was a pretty deep thinker and lyricist. Any human problem is a universal problem, and it can never be so exclusively personal that someone else can't relate to it. But when the subjects start to be uh, me, the writer, and this other person, and writing about that, and these two individuals with personalities that are unique to themselves that doesn't really have anything to do with anybody else. And uh, there's a really thin line somewhere there dividing the abuse of, of that medium or the universal topics that everyone can understand. And then there's no rule to, to do it appropriately or to avoid it. It's just a feeling that I would get when, I'm, when I was writing. If there's... Sometimes there'll be a line that's sort of confessional that I feel, uh, you know, a lot of people go through this, and, and even though it's confessional or personal, I'm not embarrassed by it. Uh, you know, the, the lyric police aren't going to show up at my door and arrest me for, for writing something that is personal or that could be embarrassing. And then, but then there's other lines where I feel this is me just basically having diarrhea of the mouth about myself, and uh, you know, if I was a listener, I wouldn't care. And I wouldn't. I would feel burdened by it almost. I don't think that that uh, writers should necessarily use their audience as uh, psychotherapists or analysts. The music industry recognized Chris's efforts, both humanitarian and through his music. It was in 2007 that I presented Chris with the Stevie Ray Vaughan at the third annual Music Cares MAP Fund benefit in Los Angeles. I have a great picture of that upstairs in my in my uh, trophy room. Um, and it was just great to see him again and be able to honor him that night. Uh, when you're in a band, a lot of musicians find that eventually they have the urge to do a solo record and Chris was no exception. Yeah, I think it was. And even though there was a lot of changes going on at once, um, you know, change of, uh, not having a band anymore. And then, uh, my wife, Susan, not managing me anymore, so new management, and then ultimately a new record company. Um, but it didn't, it, none of those things really seemed to affect the process of the album. And uh, me having years and years of experience writing songs in their entirety and producing and co-producing and uh, playing an instrument and singing, and it, it, I, there was a lot of experience behind me, so it didn't, uh, there was not a, a moment where I thought, well, maybe I can't make these decisions on my own. Maybe I can't do this on my own. Um, I didn't feel that that was necessarily the challenge. After the early 90s, when I was involved in Temple of the Dog, which I wrote a lot of the music and all of the lyrics, and also had written lyrics and songs for other people during that period, as well as writing a lot for Soundgarden, I kind of stopped and thought, uh, you know, I really want 100% of my energy as a as a writer to go into my band and not into these other things. And I kind of stepped out of it, <clears throat> and and still had that feeling up until up until the end, really. But I, the thought had crossed my mind. But had I done a solo album while still being in the band, it would have been a much different thing. I think it would have been a much more stripped down um, approach, a much quicker approach, and. Uh, you know, not so involved necessarily or so musically dense. It would have been, I think, more, probably more whimsical in some ways, but I think it would have had a, would have had a different feeling to it. And I think the perception that, 
um, from a lot of people was that it would be that, in a sense, like an, an acoustic album, very stripped down, just me in a room, like with some minimalist percussion and, and uh, somber songs played on an acoustic guitar or something, something that would have been made by someone that still had a, uh, a band together and was still a touring force. And, and uh, I think that there was, from some people, definitely this sense of this being kind of a one-time experiment and then something else would happen. And I'm not really sure why, but uh, it, I suppose it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the music any. I'm in two bands right now. I got my band and I got the Hollywood Vampires. Uh, I love being in a band. Uh, I even spend a lot of time working with my original band. So I'm in three bands, to be honest with you. Um, all three bands are fun to work with. And it's a collaborative effort. Back in 1999, at the time of this interview, Chris Cornell was making music with Alan Johans and Natasha Schneider, two great L.A.-based musicians. But what was Soundgarden up to while Chris was working on making and promoting Euphoria Morning? Yeah, um, I'm not sure what Kim's doing. And, and Ben, as far as I know, was, has been working with Mark Lanigan on a lot of stuff. Yep, but the band did break up. And I mean, I remember people went nuts. The fans were just beside themselves and the media speculates. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast in this business. We call it entertainment. It's the fact that musicians like to wander. You know, I mean, it's great to be in a band. And yet you find that at some point after 10 albums with the band that you want to move on and sound differently and you know that that band is never going to go there so if you can break up without bad feelings you know that's the that's the way to do it that's the golden ticket in terms of the focus of the media it's kind of been not willing to give a band enough time to even break up before they want to find out if they're getting back together or not i don't think the thought really has crossed my mind that's uh thinking that far into the future. I mean, I try not to think more than a few months into my own future at any given time anyway. I think that's part of the, one of the benefits of being a musician for a living. You don't have to make long-term plans. Uh, you know, we were the proponents. We were the, we loved stories about us that weren't true. We were the national inquirer of rock and roll. People would just make up things about Alice Cooper and we would laugh like crazy. You know, I don't, I never took anything seriously when it came to rumors about me. Uh, I would just laugh it off. And in fact, we were the, probably the biggest target for that of anybody because people just wanted to believe so many crazy things about Alice Cooper and there was no internet. So there was no way of getting on the internet and going, Hey, that's not true. We just went, yeah, well, that happens. <laughs> Chris wasn't some public guy or party animal out every night, but the media still followed his every move. I think it was because he was handsome like a movie star and women loved looking at him. It seems now without Chris, there can't really be any sound garden, though, of course, other bands have carried on with new singers, including Chris's Seattle pals in Alice in Chains. But when you get a Chris Cornell, that would be like losing a Mick Jagger. That would be like, you know, losing Prince. You can't replace the guy. 
There have been many loving musical tributes to Chris and Soundgarden and the band, and Chris did leave an impressive and lengthy musical legacy. Thank you, Chris, for your great influence and work, and the world wishes you were still with us now. As for you, mutants, thanks for tuning in to Vintage Vault, where we visited the 90s thanks to the awesome voice of Chris Cornell. Stay safe, stay sane, minions, and turn it up. Turn it up.